Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Martin Arnold, the FT's banking editor. Joining me in the studio is Emma Dunkley, our retail banking correspondent, while we'll be joined over the phone by Matthew Austin of Oliver Wyman, Laura Noonan, our investment banking correspondent, and Don Wineland, our Asia financial correspondent in Hong Kong. First, we'll be discussing a new study that attempts to put a price on what Brexit will cost the banks. Then we'll be taking the temperature of how well HSBC is doing as its incoming chairman prepares to join the board. And finally, we'll hear about the latest use of artificial intelligence on the investment banking trading floor. Joining me to discuss the cost of Brexit for banks is Matt Austin, partner at Oliver Wyman, which has just produced a report on how much the disruption of the UK leaving the EU will end up costing banks in terms of capital and extra annual expenditure. So Matt, what are the main findings of the report? The main findings really are that we're now at a point in the process where banks are now moving to implement their contingency plans for the post-Brexit timeframe. And what we're seeing is that there are going to be impacts in terms of a shift of jobs away from the UK and from London in particular into EU entities. The estimate of the number of jobs that are involved remain consistent with the estimates that we've generated through our work in the second half of last year when we worked with the City UK and the financial services sector more broadly to understand the impact. And those estimates remain the same. I think the additional findings that we've included in this report relate to the amount of capital, which we estimate is going to be an additional 30 to 50 billion across the sector, as well as the additional operating costs of approximately a billion. And these are really a consequence of the fragmentation, so needing to have multiple rather than a single legal entity in order to cover business in Europe. And just to be precise on that, your estimate of 30 to $50 billion of extra capital requirements for the banks, that would be an increase of some 15 to 30% on top of the capital that wholesale banks already have in Europe. And you're estimating an increase in their annual cost base of 2 to 4%. So this is going to hit return on equity. Tell us about that. There's an impact in terms of return on equity, probably in the range of 2 to 4% as a consequence both of operating costs and the costs of capital. Now, the range really is a function of how banks are able to optimise the legal entity structure and capital within it over the course of time. So there's obviously there will be a transitionary period when both the existing UK legal entity and the new EU legal entity will need to be capitalised at levels which are significantly higher than the levels that they are today. Over time, there may be some scope to optimise that. But yes, we see an overall impact of somewhere between two and four points drag on return on equity. 
Now, the UK is not set to leave the EU until March 2019. Negotiations have already started as part of the Article 50 process. So there's a lot of uncertainty, obviously. We're hearing more and more announcements about banks choosing Frankfurt or Amsterdam or Dublin to set up their alternative operations that they need to set up for coping with the disruption of Brexit. But why are banks acting now? Banks now have developed their contingency plans for Brexit. And those are obviously very detailed and look at really what the day one operating model is that is required to support business basically immediately that the two-year period has passed. So develop those plans. And furthermore, they have started to undertake actions or implement actions within those plans, which we describe as no regrets moves. So things, for example, such as acquiring office space, launching applications for regulatory licenses and approvals. And these are activities which they have a lead time. They're relatively low cost to undertake and can be reversed. And so these are actions that are being taken now. Obviously, as we move over the course of the next two years, banks will have to start taking some of the tougher actions, including capitalizing the legal entity, including moving headcount into the legal entity, And those actions become harder and more costly to reverse. But obviously, in the absence of any greater clarity than that which exists now, banks will have to plan for the lowest access scenario. And unless there's any new information that changes that, those are the plans that they will enact as the time deadline comes closer. Okay, so as time progresses, they will take more and more serious actions that will be harder to reverse. And your forecast for the impact on jobs in the city is pretty stark because you think in the worst case scenario, some 40,000 wholesale banking jobs in the UK could be lost. Yes, that's right. So if we look at the sort of day one impact, then our estimate would be somewhere between twelve and 17,000 jobs in wholesale banking that would be effectively no longer in the UK, but would be elsewhere in the EU. And this sort of tallies broadly with the sum of the announcements that we've heard over the last several months. But I guess if if you look further forward beyond that day one scenario, then yes, we think that somewhere that total could actually be in the range of 35 to 40,000, as there are broader ecosystem impacts. For example, it may well be the business makes the decision to co-locate sales and traders so that they are close together. And you know, it may well be that other parts of the financial services sector have moved into other parts of the EU and therefore the banks will need to get close to them in order to cover them effectively. So yes, we see that in the long term, those sorts of shifts could lead to a total of thirty-five to 40,000 jobs in wholesale banking moving from the UK into the EU. Okay, that's a pretty sobering assessment. Thank you very much, Matt, for joining us. So, Emma, there was also some news this week from HSBC on Brexit. Tell us what Stuart Gulliver, the CEO, said. So HSBC is the first large UK bank to come out with a price tag on Brexit, estimating that the initial disruption could cost the bank between $200 million and $300 million as a result. And Mr Gulliver also warned yesterday, alongside the bank's half-year results, that some $1 billion of revenue could be put at risk within its global banking and markets unit as a result of the impact of Brexit. 
He said he hopes to mitigate this by moving 1,000 of the bank's 6,000 strong investment banking workforce over to Paris, where it has some operations. So just to say that a number of the banks have started revealing more of their plans recently, following the Prudential Regulation Authority's deadline that it imposed upon lenders a couple of weeks ago to submit plans for Brexit. I think there is some concern behind the scenes that perhaps some banks aren't quite up to speed on their planning. And as part of some of these plans, banks had to submit what they expect to do in order to meet worst case scenario, whereby there isn't really a deal and there is a loss of passporting, whereby banks can freely move their services across Europe. It also had to submit plans for a realistic scenario, what could happen, and then a best case scenario. But I don't think too many banks focused uh, too much of their resources on that. And as part of these findings, we've heard that some of the lenders based in the UK, for example, based in London, who currently passport their services across Europe, as part of a worst case scenario planning, if they were to set up a subsidiary in Europe, they found that it would be too uneconomical for them and therefore they might end up retreating and perhaps shutting up shop in some cases and just moving back to their home jurisdiction. Thank you very much. Joining me to discuss the state of HSBC as the incoming chairman, Mark Tucker, prepares to join the board next month is Don Wineland, our Asia financial correspondent in Hong Kong. Don, it's been a long, hard slog for Douglas Flint and Stuart Gulliver since they took over as chairman and chief executive of HSBC, respectively, at the end of 2010. But people and investors seem to think that they're efforts are starting to pay off now, underlined by some pretty strong results that came out this week. Why is that? If you look back over the past couple years, there's been a lot of trauma for HSBC. I mean, you know, if we we go back just a year ago, you know, they they posted, I think, a 45% drop in second quarter profits. So, you know, to see decent profit growth, you know, some early signs of stability. I think it's, it's, you know, it's a huge success for the pair. A big plus for the bank and certainly for its share price in the past 12 months has been the strengthening of its capital position, which has allowed the bank to start buying back shares. And it promised to buy back a further $2 billion worth of shares this week. And that's gone down very well with investors, hasn't it? Oh, certainly. I mean, being able to raise the common equity tier one ratio to, you know, 14.7% and actually pull off the share buyback, just the promise of a share buyback over the past half year. I mean, we've seen the share price here in Hong Kong rise uh, at least 20%. Given the improving health of HSBC, both its balance sheet and also its its profits, and profits went up 57% in the second quarter, what do people think this means that Mark Tucker will want to do when he joins the board as its incoming chairman next month? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I mean, he certainly comes in in a position of strength. It's hard to imagine joining last year or even the year before, you know. Two years ago, you know, they were struggling with a Swiss banking scandal. Last year, profits were still down quite a ways. I think really Mr. Tucker's challenge will be to start redeploying a lot of the capital here in Asia, which is part of 
their master plan. I'm really curious to see whether or not he continues on with Mr. Gulliver's efforts to expand here in southern China. I think that'll be a big test of Mr. Gulliver's lasting legacy at HSBC. Some people think that even though Stuart Gulliver has reduced the number of countries that HSBC is in, he's done some disposals, he's done a couple of restructuring programs, cut quite a few jobs. People still think that HSBC is too big and sprawling and inefficient and could do with a more disciplined approach to what are its core businesses and perhaps shed some of the underperforming assets. Yeah, I think a lot of investors here in Asia probably feel the same. And, you know, it's done quite a good job expanding in Beijing and and Shanghai. You know, so if it can focus on core markets here in Asia, I think that would be a big success over the next couple of years. And Mark Tucker has achieved something equivalent, perhaps not exactly the same, with AIA, the Asian insurance company, which has really seen a strong share price performance. And he's really expanded in Asia, the business that he took over a few years ago. Sure. I mean, it is difficult to compare the two businesses. I mean, given the penetration rate of insurance in the region here, growing at that kind of rate, you know, it's hard to compare with, say, loan expansion at a bank. But um, yeah, he certainly has a strong track record of being able to grow that kind of business in Asia. Well, we'll be watching closely, I know, when he takes over for the first signs of what he plans to do. But thanks very much, Don, for joining us. So for our final item, I'm joined by Lauren Noonan on the phone from her holiday in Dublin to discuss her story about JP Morgan introducing artificial intelligence into its trading floor and in particular a robot that executes trades across its global equities algorithms business. So Laura, what does that mean? What does this AI system do exactly? Basically, when you have a client who wants to sell something, they can give the bank an order to do it in a number of different ways. If you want to sell a large block of, say, equity in something, you can ask for two sold in a very fast time. You can ask for two sold at a certain average price, at a certain minimum price. And the bank then has to go out and actually execute and try to work out how it can sell the stock into the market without actually moving the price down as it's selling the stock. And has to try to find out the best places to sell the stock to get the best price. So that's called execution. And what JP Morgan has essentially done is they've got this new artificial intelligence system and it has looked at billions of actual trades and billions of submitted trades. And it has used that to work out the exact best way to execute trades. So it works out whether you should be selling in blocks of 10,000 or in blocks of 1,000 and what time of the day is best. And it takes into account previous trading patterns and then it uses all that information to work out how you can get the best benefit from your trade today. And part of the intelligent aspect to it is that it basically constantly updates its own database. So every day in the market, it is then learning more and more so that it will always be the most up-to-date, best way of executing. It's executing these trades itself, this program, rather than suggesting the best way to do it to a human trader that then executes it. It's executing, but it doesn't do any advisory at all. So it isn't going to tell you whether it's a good idea to sell these stocks or whether you should actually buy stocks. All it does is it takes the seller's instruction and then executes that on the market. The bank has found that it's better at it than the previous way of doing it. Yeah, so the bank has been trialing it for its European equities algorithm business since the start of the year, and it's found a significantly better average outcome. 
what they're going to do between now and the end of the year is also roll out to Asia and also to the US business. So far, they've also mainly been doing it on JP Morgan's own business, so they're going to be introducing it to their overall client business as well. And they say that it's more important than ever because it's so hard with interest rates being so low to get a return. But if you're able to execute for a 10% better price, that makes a big difference to your overall return. Yeah, this is one of several examples. We talked a few weeks ago about UBS introducing some artificial intelligence into their trading floor. It's early days, but how big do you think this could become? Could we see robots replace lots of investment bankers around the world? Certainly the end game is for this to replace people, not just in this way, but in lots of other ways. So even the program that they have at JP Morgan, they could, in theory, make that a customizable thing so that it gets to know individual client behavior as well. And then it works out that the best trade for me might be the best trade for you because you have more tolerance for risk than I have. So they can take that even further. Banks are looking all over their offerings to see how they can substitute AI or not even that, but similar kinds of robotics. And there's certainly a lot of potential to that in the back to middle office. So I think in the UBS case, they were using it a lot on the middle office side, and there's certainly a lot of potential there. Banks are all keen to use it. So I spoke to JP Morgan extensively about how far the regulators will actually let them go with this, and if they have to prove to regulators that this thing is able to act responsibly. And they say they haven't got to get individual things like this approved. It's part of an overall framework. So I think as we see banks putting more and more AI onto their trading floors, you can expect the regulators to guess more actively involved in monitoring them, approving them, seeing that there are a lot of safeguards in place so that if something went badly wrong, you can't hold an AI culpable. From a regulatory perspective, they would want the book to stop with a person. Their counter to that was that, first of all, there's going to be a person ultimately overseeing all of the systems, but also they maintain that their chances of having a big crash or having a big mistake are actually far, far smaller if you have AI doing things. And they say people are far more likely to make mistakes than their AI, which they say doesn't make mistakes. Much less human error. Okay, Laura, fascinating stuff. Thank you so much for joining us from your holiday in Dublin. Enjoy the rest of it. And that's it for this week. All that's left to do is to thank Emma, Laura, Don and Matt for their contributions and thank you for listening. Remember, you can keep up to date with all the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon. Until next week, goodbye. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.